five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. But it works out fine. Welcome to another edition of 15 Minutes of Flame. I'm your your host, your digital Sherpa for the day. I'm Robert Phoenix. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, you can always join the live festivities at 15 Minutes of Flame. That's 15 Minutes of OVflame.com, where we get together every morning from 9-11 a.m. to 10-41 p.m. a.m. That'd be a long podcast. Uh, and um, we we uh, we get together and we look at things and explore things and untangle things and we connect, sort of like the people of Synanon, which we're going to talk about. California is this crazy hotbed of cultic activity. My God, it is it is nuts when you when you when when you go down the list and you look at, okay, Fram, sorry, the Megalodon has to get buttoned up today. I'm going to button up the Megalodon today. There we go. This is much more 1960s. Um, when you go through California and you look at the cult activity in California, it is, it is crazy. Some of which has the hidden hand of intelligence agencies some some is direct, like you can see it. Some is indirect, and some of it is just organic and spontaneous on its own. Synanon seems to be wedged somewhere in between. We talked about the People's Temple last week, and uh, Jim Jones definitely seems to have CIA connections through the guy that he grows up with in Indiana who he visits down in Brazil. The guy's what, his name is Matroni or something like that. And um, is connected to essentially this world police force, which I never knew existed. They actually have a world police force. And it's down in Brazil where I think Jim Jones gets a lot of training. Because they they took this guy down there and they trained him in torture by, by picking up... Uh, vagrants and the homeless in Brazil and they used to torture them. And eventually this guy, his buddy winds up going to Uruguay, gets kidnapped and killed. And it becomes the foundation for this movie called state of siege by Costa, Costa Gravis. Costa Garvis. I think it's Costa Garvis. Anyway. Um, so Jim Jones comes back from Brazil. He's got a ton of cash. Well, back then, in the 60s, $10,000 was a lot of money. So he got $10,000. He was picked up at the airport by a limo, which for all intents and purposes was, was either 
uh, an intelligence uh, group or State Department car, whatever. It was not your typical yellow taxi that picks him up at the airport, takes him back to his home. And soon, soon right after that, they go to, they paid for his travel too to Brazil. By the way, Jim Jones had like, at that time, he had something like seven or eight kids, some of which were his own and some of which he adopted. He was into having a, a, a biracial little rainbow family. So right after that, he moves, he goes to California and he goes up to the Redwood Valley in Ukiah and starts the People's Temple and, and gets people that are out of quote unquote insane asylums, um, people that are kind of, impo- you know, he's he's really taking sort of the, the he's a bottom feeder. Jim Jones is a bottom feeder and he's using the bottom to get to the top. But there's connections through Jim Jones and the People's Temple with World Vision which is also connected to strange characters like uh, Mark David Chapman, John Hinckley. I wonder why John Hinckley didn't have a middle name. I mean, I'm sure he did. John David Hinckley, isn't it? What we mostly call him John Hinckley. We call Chapman, Mark David Chapman. Anyway, the fingerprints are all over Jim Jones. It's clear. The fingerprints are less visible on Synanon. Now, Synanon's this weird kind of hybrid in a lot of ways of a a managed operation and one that's kind of organic. So before I drop into the the story of Synanon, Charles Diederich and the immense power and the... um, the cultural changes that Synanon brings for better or worse become integrated into our lives. So this whole idea of the drug treatment center and drug recovery center wouldn't exist without Synanon. So in a weird way, Charles Diederich winds up saving millions of lives, even though his version tends to just veer off into this strange the bizarre, almost neo-Nazi-like cult, hence the, the title of today's show, uh, California Uber Alice, named after the, uh, the song by the Dead Kennedys, whom I saw one time at the Temple Beautiful, which was uh, Jim Jones's, I think it was next to the People's Temple, was either they, it was the Bisous talked about it. I actually saw the dead Kennedys at a place that the People's Temple had access to. So there's a church, and then there was this big hall right next to it. So it's interesting how these things sort of become very circular. Yeah, I saw the dead Kennedys and um, the Buzzcocks. It was a great show. It was a very great show. The dead Kennedys were, were incredible. Jell Biafra. He turned into a, a lefty asshole, but he was actually at that time a great, great punk rock front guy. And then the Buzzcocks were just, of course, the Buzzcocks. You know, three minutes of fury in every song, but with a slight, catchy, poppy tune or angle to them. They were fantastic. The Temple Beautiful was 
the scene of my last punk rock show. It was, it, it was that moment where I realized that I was over and done with this scene. And I think it was around 23. I was in a very different headspace than a lot of these other people. And um, we went and saw a bunch of punk bands, The Afflicted. And the headliner was the only band I was there to see, which was The Bad Brains. Because I'd heard a lot about The Bad Brains. I'd heard some of their music. I thought they were interesting. And they were. The, the Bad Brains did not fail to disappoint. A combination of furious hardcore, I guess they just call it hardcore. They don't even call it punk, just furious hardcore. And then they would drop down into these dub tunes and it, you'd get like crazy reverb drenched Jamaican dub. It was pretty impressive display of musicianship, I have to say. But I realized that this was no longer my scene because they had the, the mosh pit and it, it was like incredibly like violent. And I was, I just wasn't into that, that vibe at that time. It was earlier. If it was, if I, it was my tw early twenties. Well, I was in my early twenties. If I was like 19, 20, maybe 21, I, I'd have been fine with it. But the music wasn't the same then. It didn't have that uh, angry nihilistic kind of edge. Shit. Punk rock was fun. It wasn't fun. For, it wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't fun for me anymore. It was like, why, why would you want to do that? That's not fun. My idea of fun is to bop around and meet cool, cool girls and, you know, new, new wave short skirts and haircuts that look like Pat Benatar. That was my idea of fun. And uh, get plastered with your buddies and hear some good music and uh, kind of allow your inner punk, but not the punk that wants to destroy shit. Out. That was not that was not my thing. All right, now that we've got this settled, let me go back into chat and let's say hi. So for all you people who are listening on the podcast side, we do have a very nice little chat community here. I would I wouldn't call it like Synanon. I wouldn't call it Synanon because people are always free to leave, unlike Synanon. But uh, it is a nice little uh, nice little chat zone here. Okay, who do we have? We got Rue 9. Are there issues today at the 15 Minutes of Flame site? No, shouldn't be. I am back from our trip, trying to figure all this out. Uh, Tom Jordan, what's going on? Good to see you. Welcome back, Lisa. Pretty easy here, except we can't just chat when there is not a show in progress. No, I might have to do something different with that. Is there a chat box in the 15 Minutes of Flame site? This is the 15 Minutes. It is. There. It is here, yes. Uh, Lisa, not today. There is one here. So you guys are over on Boxcast. I, I, it's over here. It's on the, the site. I miss the old chat, but here we are. We have Sony. So everybody's got a different opinion of the chat. I was talking with uh, Gucci to Goats on Thursday. She likes the chat. If you're on your cell phone, apparently this chat is much better. Let's see who else do we have. Hucklebuck is here. I think the levy is broken. Wendy says is here. What's going on, Wendy? JJ Rain de Blanc. How are you today? I'm chatting on my phone, watching on my laptop. Okay, there you go. Tedeschi Trucks Band has some good tunes. I'm sure Robin has something to say. I'm not sure to, how to access chat on my laptop. It's very simple. All you have to do is go to my site, 
It's all. So I, I don't know kind of what the issue is here. Like, so when I click on me, Oh, is this is the, is this the old one? This is the old one. California. Here, let me re refresh this. Yeah, this is the old one, right? That's the new one. So when I go when I go on the site, why is this one uh, doing this? Oh, hold on. I don't know why this is doing this. All right, we got a fucky Monday. It is what it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I apologize. We'll get it together tomorrow. I promise. I promise. Mondays are kind of like this sometimes. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about Mondays. I just have a bad case of the Mondays. Somebody's got a bad case of the Mondays. Anyway, thanks for being here. Thanks for being over on BoxCast. I, I vow that by tomorrow we will have it together. Let's take a quick look at what's going on in the world, and then we're going to drop down into Synanon and the crazy story behind it. So there is obviously plenty of things cooking in the world. A lot going on here. The uh, truckers' convoy has been essentially dismantled, and... Canada will never be the same. Like this is the boot. This is this is the boot on the neck, and it's not a good one. We a lot of people saw the uh, image of the woman who was disabled who got trampled by a horse. One of the, one, you know, one of the horses of the apocalypse. Uh, now they're going, they're going layers deep here. This is, this is really fucked up. I'm just saying. Canada, you got a crisis and I don't know why people on this planet are not standing with you. I mean, we are theoretically in, um, in spirit, but this is ridiculous. Let's go here. Let's go to Twitter. I don't have the uh, video audio on. Auto police are now going after local business owners who served truck drivers like this coffee shop to serve coffee to them. Thanks to tips by local residents, they're forcing them to close. What a bunch of bullshit. What a bunch of horseshit. This is ridiculous. Tips by local residents. You people ought to be fucking ashamed of yourselves. So now this coffee shop that the local residents might have gone to won't be there anymore. Good one. Good one, locals. So what we're watching right now is the police attempting to come in and shut this guy's place down. And he won't open the door. And... My my guess is that he's going to open the door. If he doesn't open the door, they're gonna they're gonna break it down. They'll use some kind of like a battering ram or something. This is ridiculous. 
What a bunch of horse shit. Canada will never be the same. It will never, ever be the same. Justin Trudeau, forget about it. He's done. But I guess Cynthia Freeland, who is his understudy, uh, she's another acolyte of Klaus Schwab. So now the, the cops are talking to this guy. You know, this is just ridiculous. They're not going to let up. They're, they're essentially telling him that they're gonna, he's got to open the door because he served coffee to the truckers. Somehow he was sympathetic. This is just bullshit. Now they got, okay, starts off with the woman and he's not listening to her. So they bring in the ogre. The big ogre is now trying to get his attention. This is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So the, uh, the trucker strike is for all intents and purposes. It's, it's over. They broke it. Congratulations. Let's see what else we have here. Reports of burns through clothing from convoy to Canberra rally. This is another thing that is very disturbing. Very, very disturbing. So I'm going to bring this up here. This comes from the not-so-free state of Canberra, and I know that we have listeners in Canberra, and I hope they're okay. They broke out the direct energy weapons in Canberra, microwave energy weapons deployed against Canberra Freedom Convoy. I'm going to read this to you. This is from the Miami Standard. It was published two days ago, February 19th. Australian police have been deploying direct directed energy weapons dues against the peaceful Freedom Convoy protesters around the capital, according to reports. Disturbing videos and photos circulating social media show Canberra protesters, including women and children, who appear to have been badly burned by directed microwave energy weapons with blisters on their faces, arms, and torsos. These particular do reportedly use concentrated microwave radiation to inflict painful burns on the skin from far distances. So one of the things that they talk about with the do weapons is that you don't fully recover. That whatever happened, you, you're, you're like changed afterwards. And I would not be surprised if you see cancers begin to develop inside of people who have had these direct energy weapons. Priscilla Lawrence, I've, I have got burns that feel more like scolds over my body from Epic that have penetrated through clothing, 50 plus SPF. And I was not in the direct sun, but always under caravan annex. So it's summertime down in Canberra. Some people will have less clothing on. Uh, terrible cramping whilst at Epic. I guess that was the uh, the protest. Burning ears, 
blood blisters in mouth, no appetite. My mouth and lips were so dry, had a thirst, could not quench. Reports of burns from convoy to Canberra. Some through clothing, sunscreen, long-range acoustic devices were right there, and police are not being up front. Uh, this is Amanda Lewis Morgan. So look at what's going on here. If you're, again, looking at the listening to the podcast, we have an image of somebody who has a very swollen uh, lower bottom lip, red blistering on their chin. My lips and chin are still bleeding after shocking blisters and peeling. Sat all the way home to Adelaide on Saturday night with a wet toilet on my, I guess it's a wet paper towel, on my face. Wouldn't stop burning. My leg has crazy allergic reaction to a bite, I believe, from extra heat or something. I'm tough as usually, but I've taken pain. So uh, she's also got some, looks like... Uh, splotching on her skin here's a holy shit shannon parsons left the rally with a very red face neck and arms on saturday went to bed saturday night with small bumps on my chin woke up sunday morning with blisters that developed throughout the day my face and lips are now incredibly dry chin is peeling again we're seeing bubbling blisters um they even have some scarring here my close friend was wearing full-length denim jeans all day no exposure to sun experienced this burn Sunburn doesn't happen through denim and it doesn't happen so fiercely just in one spot. So again, we're seeing this uh, scalding of the skin. It's, it looks like it's like a incredibly bad sunburn. Um, let's do this. Let me, let me play some audio here. I'm going to stop the share. I want to make sure that we have some video so we can listen to what this fascist clown has to say. Here we go. In relation to the convoy, these, these questions are coming from a constituent. In relation to the convoy to Canberra protest activity Parliament House just last weekend, pictures of the day appear to show some types of devices at the front of Parliament House in between the entry to Parliament and Parliament lawns where the protest was in fact occurring. Can you confirm whether the AFP had long-range acoustic devices at Parliament House on Saturday? That would be something that uh is our police methodology, which we would have to look at some sort of public interest immunity claim, uh, Senator? Is there any what the hell is that? public I mean, interest to, so, to so know whether So this is a guy, he's some military wonk. Listen to his answer. He absolutely says nothing. He's talking out of the side of his mouth. This guy's going to ask him again. He looks like the Jim Jordan of the Australian Parliament, whatever they have there. That would be something that uh, is our police methodology, which we would have to look at some sort of public interest immunity claim. So he's saying that it is a police methodology and they'd have to look at some sort of public interest immunity claim. So he's basically saying, I can't answer that question because if I do, I'll divulge the police methodology. Just translating here for you. Uh, Senator? Is there any, surely it's we, in the public interest to, to know whether or not they're there without delving too much into I'd it? Have to, I'd have to, if I could take that on notice, I'd have to get advice. Okay, I'll be happy. I understand. I'll be happy for that. Um, and also, if you could tell us what type they were, please. Sure. Um, and can you confirm whether or not they were used at any point? Sure. Sure. So we're seeing uh, pictures of the the dues 
or the LRADs as they're most commonly known as. I know Senator Roberts touched on this earlier, but he mentioned uh, the deployment of some equipment, and I think he was referring to an LRAD machine, and I've been provided with this photograph, which I'm happy to table uh, electronically, of course, from a distance. Um, it does appear to show the deployment of an LRAD machine, a long-range acoustic uh, device, I think it's called, which is a device designed to um, uh, pitch sound at long range and can cause some pretty serious injuries. You, you can't confirm, even given that photo, that that device was deployed on, on the day? Senator Durantic, I just want to interrupt here to make it clear that this question has already been taken on notice. I, I understand that, but just with the benefit of having had that with the benefit of having had that, that photograph, which tends to confirm it, um, we still can't confirm that that device was, was there on the day? Yeah, I think to be proper, I'd, I'd like to take that on notice. All right, so we'll ask that one on whether it was used. What a, what a, what a little lying piece of shit. He can't even look people in the eye. He's got, he's got a uniform on. He has all these ep, ep, epaulets or epaulets, whatever they're called. Clearly, he's got some service badges. This is supposed to be somebody who is serving the country and protecting the country. He can't even look the camera right in the eye. He's a worm. This guy's a worm. Um, on the day... Senator Rangic, I'm sorry, we are going to have to... I have one more question, Chair, right, and it's a very quick make one. Make a very quick one. Very quick one. My last question is, there were some reports on the day of uh, some interference with the bandwidth. Um, citizen journalists talking about losing footage dropping out. Uh, is that anything you're aware of? Is that anything the AFP was involved with? Uh, and do you know anything about that? No, the only thing I, the only thing I'd heard was that um, they'd moved to another campsite where there was no internet, uh, and then they moved on, but not uh, not that. So they have uh, images here of the LRADs mounted on top of uh, looks like police vehicles. The LRADs are they're no bullshit. Of course, they didn't use them. Uh, during the uh, Antifa or Black Lives Matter riots. Oh, no. No, they, did, they didn't use them. They could they could have ended that stuff like that if they had broken out there. And by the way, police departments all over the United States have them. They were bought secondhand from the United States government, United States military, as the militarization of local police ramped up during the Obama era. Uh, so the directed energy weapons are a big deal, and um, we don't really have much of an answer for them, to be honest. I mean, I've thought this through. Like, how would you, how would you deal with a, with a directed energy weapon or a, or a, an LRAD, which is essentially a microwave weapon? Like, how would you defend against that? I'm not. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how you defend against it. You you would have to wear a suit that had some kind of lead lining probably uh, and then you probably have to wear something along the lines of a welder's helmet and I'm talking about a helmet I'm not talking about just the thing that drops over your your face you, you'd have to have something that would cover the, the, your head. And it would, it would have to be some alloy and probably some version of lead. 
I mean, maybe you could see back in the day, you could probably get away with lead line paint. And there's, there's this conspiracy that people think that the reason they got rid of lead paint was not because children were eating it. I, I mean, I was a kid and I, I'm sure I lived in an apartment at one point with lead line paint and I never chipped on it, but that was, that was the, uh, th- that was the, uh, the excuse for getting rid of lead line paint. And, and, and if that's true, okay, it's, let's just say that that's true. And let's say they used lead line paint in low income neighborhoods. And so the kids that were eating the lead line paint were probably low income poverty level kids. Do you think they would give a shit about them? The answer to that is probably no, unless it was politically expedient, in which case the answer would be yes, because now all of a sudden they care about people. But they got rid of lead line paint probably for this reason. Because lead line paint, if you painted your house and you know, with with paint that had lead in it, then your your house would not be subjected to guess what? 5G microwave energy. So if you could find lead-based, lead-based paint, if you could find lead-based paint and you could use it, paint over, you know, some kind of a suit or something, you might be able to deal with this shit because that's what you would need, essentially. You would need need a lead suit or suit that had some sort of lead fiber. You'd essentially have to be a walking Faraday cage in order to not... We'd all have to be Iron Man in order to deal with this stuff. It's, it's, it, it should not be allowed. These weapons should not be allowed. They're, 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 they're damaging. They're, it's like, oh, these are, non, these are non-lethal weapons. You stay under an LRAD for a period of time. Let's say, for instance, you, you – oh, you're showing up. Uh, let's say, for instance, you wind up passing out under an LRAD and you can't get out of the way, it'll kill you. I'm telling you right now, it'll cook you from the inside out. Oh, you'll never get into an LRAD, I promise. Again, from the podcast side of things, the astrological cat has just joined the show. Okay, so what we're seeing here is uh, in these crown countries, the, the boot is coming down hard. And we're, we're seeing the... The, the ugly face of fascism rear its grotesque head in Canada. We're seeing the Stasi uh, rat people out there, the citizen Stasi rat people out in Canada who serve coffee to the truckers. They serve coffee. And now guess what, people? You're going you're gonna to lose your cafe. Don't worry, though. Don't worry. I'm sure the Trudeau government will be happy to turn that cafe over to somebody from another country who they're bringing in because, well, they believe in democracy and they believe in the right for everybody to have a fair and equal shot. They'll just pull that cafe. They'll throw somebody else in there. Guess what? It's your lucky day. You're going to have a cafe. Have you ever run a cafe before? Uh, No, but I have made zero. Don't worry about it. We'll have people that will, will teach you. So now they'll have that cafe and they'll have somebody in there from, I don't know, 
let's say uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan, one of the stands. And they'll turn it over. They'll, they'll give them the place. They'll turn it around and it'll be, hey, look at this great success story. This place was owned by extremists. And now we have this family who has taken over the business and they have turned the they have turned the cafe back into a, a neighborhood essential. And I guarantee you, the only people that will go to that place are the rats that ratted them out. Nobody else will go there. If some if they wind up giving that place to somebody else, nobody else will go there. So I hope the rats go there often. And um, no, I don't really. I hope they don't go there at all. Or not enough to keep the place afloat. It's a this is a travesty. This is the world we're living in now. So these crown countries are having a very, very difficult time. I could spend the rest of the show just talking about this shit. And um, Canberra was one of those cities for a while in Australia that seemed as little hands off, a little hands offy. It was New South Wales, but of all the places, they because Canberra is the capital, if I'm not mistaken, they decided to put a show force. And that guy who sat in front of those senators, what a worm! And then you have the woman coming in. I believe we've addressed that question already. Excuse me, I believe we've addressed that question already. It's in standing. It's like getting them off the hook. He can't even speak for himself. He's got to have an agent for the nanny state jump in and cock block his answer. All right. Enough for the enough for the current situation. It's not great. I'm telling you. It is not great. On the other hand, these images are circulating all over the world. They're going through this microphone, through this camera, through whatever listening device or viewing device you're experiencing on, and you're becoming fully aware of what's taking place. Now, do they care about that? Yes and no. Uh, they don't want people videotaping that because the bandwidth was turned down in Canberra. It's like, well, it's because they moved to another camp. I believe because they moved to another camp, which had uh, less internet access and less bandwidth, which is bullshit. They could turn cell phones off very easily. They could have done it during the whole Black Lives Matter thing, which is ridiculous. They could disable cell phones like that. I'll never forget the first time I experienced the power of the cell phone. It was when I lived in San Diego. It was my first foray into Mexico when I was living down there. And I had a little Nokia. It wasn't even a flip phone. It was a little Nokia. There was no flip about it. It was just right there. So I remember talking to somebody before I went over the border. And the moment I crossed over the border, my phone stopped working. It was like, okay, this is interesting. I mean, they can just really nail it to that. And I tested. It wasn't even five feet. I was on the other side of this line. And it's like, sorry, you don't have any service here. And they've done it before. They've actually blocked cell phone service in certain areas. And this is how they organize. They organize via cell phones. 
this is a big part of the color revolution. Cell phones played a huge role, have played a huge role in the color revolutions. So all AT&T and Verizon or the other one, uh, I always forget their name, the, the cheap ass one. All they had to do is block surface within a, you know, a five block radius, six block radius for what, two hours a time? Do you think residents could have lived without their cell phones for two hours who had this crazed, wild, Mad Max mob in their neighborhood? Do you think they would have cared? They said, I'll sacrifice my cell phone for two minutes if you block their cell phones and get them the fuck out of here. But they didn't do that. They could have. They could have used the the LRADs. They kind of brought them out a little bit in, um, what is it, uh, Kenosha. But they were weak. They were just like super high-pitched sounds. It, it, they didn't bring out the big guns like they did in Canberra. Because if they did, they would have they would have just scattered like roaches. And you wouldn't have had, you wouldn't have had a lot of these incidents. You wouldn't have had Kyle Rittenhouse, whoever he is, and where by the way, Kyle Rittenhouse just became Ray Meland in The Invisible Man. Wasn't that wasn't Ray Meland? He's become the invisible boy. Kyle Rittenhouse has become a superhero called the Invisible Boy. He went from being uh Bernhard Getz to the Invisible Boy. He went from being Charlie Bronson. What was his name? Paul. Paul Curtsy or something like that. I forget. What was his name? His name was, his name was Paul. God. And it was in Death Wish. First Death Wish. Kind of an amazing movie. If you think about it. Kind of an amazing film. He's an architect. Charles Bronson is an architect. That's an interesting thought. Uh, his wife and uh, daughter get raped and killed. The daughter's in a coma. The wife is killed. And uh, he can't handle it. He's on a business trip to Arizona. Of course, he goes to Arizona. And uh, this guy introduces him to guns in Arizona. So he gets into guns. And then he decides that he's going to go hunt down the uh, scum of New York City and play vigilante. And I think they have like Death Wish 3 or 4. I think Jimmy Page did the soundtrack for Death Wish 3. Probably the best thing about the movie. Anyway, um, yeah, they could have done it. They could have just deployed that stuff. And we could spend all morning talking about this. But those, I think, are the two headline items. The breaking of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, and then also the the unleashing of sonic weaponry in Canberra. And if and if any if this thing goes full tilt boogie at any point, they will bust that stuff out. And a lot of people who have been prepping for the shit hits the fan moment, trust me, they the the what they've got on the side with. Things like that with drones, um, either the large drones or the swarm drones. It's it's not a, it's not a it's not a pleasant thought as to how the uh, the powers that be might respond to a shit it's a fan moment crisis cast. Which is why it'd be much better to just resolve this 
in a uh, more peaceful way. But unfortunately, um, when you deal with people who have that kind of power, that kind of control and use it without any kind of conscience, it's very, it's very hard to uh, believe that you can negotiate with these kinds of, let's just use the word entities. It's really non-negotiable. Okay, let's let's take a little trip back in time because we only have about 30 minutes left and I've talked a long time here about what's going on, at least today. Um, Sidenon. Sidenon was a phenomenon. And let me show you who uh, Charles Diederich is because he plays a very important role in the history of Sidenon. I'm going to try to get... Uh, the lawyer who prosecuted him on the show. Let me give you a visual of Chuck Diederich. Here's a picture of him. And he always wears overalls, which is interesting. There he is with overalls here. This is is a big picture. Let's check this out. This is his wife. And I think in the movie, his wife was portrayed by Eartha Kitt, if I'm not mistaken. Because there's a Sinanon movie. And it uh, stars Edmund O'Brien playing uh, Chuck Dieterich. And I'm not sure he did a great job as Dieterich. Because Dieterich was this very charismatic and in many ways, extremely polarizing figure. So he, he starts off uh, in life. Uh, Paul Morantz does a really, really good breakdown of Dieterich's life or Dieterich. I think it's Dieterich. does a really good breakdown of his life. And his father dies when I think he's about four years old. He's the oldest his mother puts him in charge of the family. So he becomes like her confidant. Um, he becomes, he becomes her uh, second in command and basically has to run. And I wouldn't say run, but, but he's kind of expected like, you know, age nine, 10, 11 to be the man of the house. But then her mother remarries and the stepfather is apparently a piece of shit. Dieterich does not get along with him. There's an edible thing going on because he believes that his mother and him are like this. His youngest brother dies of influenza. Um, He flunks out of Notre Dame. He's from Indiana. All these strange people are from Indiana, by the way. Uh, I think he's from, I'm pretty sure, I think he's, no, he's from Toledo, Ohio, Toledo, Jim Jones from Indiana. Anyway, Notre Dame's in Indiana. He flunks out. He winds up going to California. He's a heavy drinker. He got married when he was young. Uh, his first wife divorces him, goes to California, lands a job on the assembly line for McDonnell Douglas, heavy drinker. His wife says, you've got to go to AA or else I'll leave you. He goes to AAA and she still leaves him. So he becomes uh, deeply enmeshed in 
the AA world in higher power. And then I think it's either, I think it's around 1958. He volunteers for an experiment at UCLA with a group of people who have addiction and they're given LSD. And he says, this is the most singular important event in my life. And after he has, there are a couple of interesting accounts of him taking the acid. One account is that it didn't affect him in the same way it affected other people. And that he didn't show the same signs of kind of a euphoric mania. He, he, he was, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, looked very normal and appeared to be very normal after taking it. With one exception, he began to sob. And he must have sobbed for about two or three days. And it's through this experience that he has this epiphany and this holistic awareness of oneness in a way that he'd never experienced before. So it's interesting that a lot of these experiments take place in the California university system, just like how Ken Kesey was probably right around the same time uh, dosing on LSD, maybe a little bit later uh, at Stanford. So they were running these experiments at these universities. And he's one of the beneficiaries of this experience. So one of the things that AA did not do is that AA did not take in people that had drug addiction. AA was convinced that uh, drug addicts were incurable. And this, this was kind of the idea of how drug addicts were, were, were perceived in the 1950s. And the big drug during that time, of course, was heroin. And heroin was used in the inner cities. Um, and it was used by mu musicians and jazz musicians. So Chuck Dieterich would uh, essentially just out of his own home here in Santa Monica, uh, start something called tender loving things or tender loving care, tender loving care, TLC. And he would uh, bring in junkies and he would say, look, you know, we can, we can cure you. We can help you. There's no other place for you. And eventually this thing morphs into synanon. And Synanon, it was sort of this gibberish that came out of this guy's mouth, according to Paul Morantz, who's the lawyer who winds up pursuing and eventually prosecuting Chuck Dieterich many years down the line. Uh, and Dieterich and, and the crew went outside this place that I'm showing you. This is the house uh, where they did a lot of their, their treatment. And the people in Santa Monica hated it. They're like, why? You know, we have to get these junkies out of here. We don't want them in our neighborhood. So when he heard this sort of gibberish, which sounded kind of like Sinanon, they all went down to the beach, and you can see behind me, and they wrote it out a couple different ways. And then it's like, oh, okay, this is Sinanon. This is what we're going to call it. And for him, it became Sin, which was synergy, and Anon, which was anonymous. So this is the roots of the word Sinanon. And very quickly, Dieterich turns this kind of, I don't know, 
individual outreach moment into a corporation. He forms a corporation, Synodon Corporation. And there were a number of LA jazz musicians who were trying to kick smack who show up at Synodon. So you have people like, um, I think Stan Kenton might've gone through there. Later on, his son would become one of uh, Synodon's elite guard is what they call them. And I'll get to that story later, maybe even tomorrow, because we may not have enough time. Uh, but you had Art Pepper, who was a famous jazz sax player. This is part of the L.A. cool jazz scene. You had Joe Pass, who was a guitarist, famous jazz guitarist. And they come through Synodon. And so Synodon also had really cool jazz music. So if you wanted to kick, remember, this is you know pre-Laurel Canyon. So this, this is that, that interregnum that uh, uh, Hans Otter talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, where you know you have this kind of cool LA jazz scene that was there, but it's not it's not the uh, the Laurel Canyon scene at all. But this is it, like this is where it's at. And these jazz guys go in, they kick, and they start hanging out. I think Joe Pass even wrote a song called "Set It On" or something like that. So it was cool. Like it was a cool place to be. It, was, it wasn't like it was a bunch of, you know, boring creeps. So the, the idea behind Synanon, the structure is that you would go in if you were a junkie and you would go cold turkey and they would give you coffee, cigarettes, and I guess peanut butter sandwiches was what people basically existed on. And, and so three days, you, you can kick heroin after three days, but it's not anything pleasant. Um, and then once they kicked, they were in, and they were given tasks and duties. But what they did in Synodon is they, they pioneered something called attack therapy. And Chuck Dieterich called it the game. Now, Paul Morantz, who is the guy who's the lawyer that takes down Chuck Dieterich eventually, makes a connection between attack therapy and the game with North Korean brainwashing techniques. And even Dieterich admits to this. Now, where Dieterich got these techniques, I don't know. I don't know if they just arose out of his subconscious. He became a very avid reader after his LSD trip. And one of the, uh, the, the works that he read that really struck a chord with him was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it was essentially about being accountable to your, your beingness and self-sustainability. So Dieterich really takes us in, and this is what he is trying to impart upon people that come through Synanon. And the attack therapy, also known as the game, I wonder if I can find a, a video of it. Let me see if I can find a video of it. They, they have a really white bread version of this. 
uh, on the Synanon movie or in the Synanon movie. Very white bread version. They, they, they would. Let me see if I can find it here. So there's a video that says attack therapy. What is it? What is attack therapy? Meaning definite. Um, I'm not going to play the video. Maybe I'll play it tomorrow. Uh, let me just try this again. Because I have to go through it first. A little bit on the fly here. Yeah, I wish I had some actual footage of the attack therapy. Because Paul Morantz talks about, he talks about it uh, very explicitly. And essentially what they would do is they would give somebody a haircut. Okay, this was not, you would get a haircut at Synodon, trust me. If you had longish hair, you'd get a haircut. There's a weird scene in the movie with Evan O'Brien where Alex Cord gets his haircut and he gets his mustache shaved. And one of the characters in the haircut scene is Jay Sebring, who would later be attacked and uh, murdered by another cult, the Manson family. So he's actually in the movie in the haircut, which is really weird because he was a hairstylist. What, what the hell Jay Sebring was doing in that movie, I don't know. But that gives you this bizarre six degrees of separation with the movie. Anyway, the haircut was real and you could see that there were a bunch of people with shaved heads in the thumbnail for the show. And that became the ultimate haircut. And people would have their heads shaved inside of Synanon if they fucked up because Synanon was also into shaming. All right, let me talk about the haircut in, as it relates to attack therapy. So, they would have somebody, you could have an individual haircut from Charles Dieterich or one of his uh, lieutenants, and, and they would call you out on something, and they would rip you from head to toe. That was the individual haircut. Then they would have the group haircut, and then they would bring somebody out, and if they did something wrong, or even if they didn't do anything wrong, if there was a perceived character flaw, they'd bring them out and they would dress them down in front of everybody else. And so then it would have this ricochet effect with everyone else in the, in the group setting. And that was one version of the game. It was the haircut, but the game itself would last sometimes up to three days. And it would be, I'll try to find some game footage. And it would essentially be people attacking each other in, in finding their worst flaws. And by the way, if, if Charles Dieterich was in the room or anybody else was in the room, they were game. Like it was just because they were at a certain level, the hierarchy, they weren't immune to the attack in the game, which is quite interesting. So after three days of this, you're broken down. 
you can see this with any number of groups. Uh, Erner, uh, uh, Earhart seminar trainings, also known as EST, would do the same thing, only they would do it over a longer period of time. They would do it over two weekends, two intensive weekends, and then uh, night, uh, evenings over two weeks. And it, it would be through those sessions where you would be broken down and you would be forced to view your mechanized self and the things that you have excuses for. So this is a very prominent tool that is kind of floating around the, uh, the self-help world in the, in, the, in the 60s and into the 70s. Now, what's interesting here from an astrological standpoint, we have Neptune and Scorpio, which has a lot to do with drugs. And of course, you know, we're talking about narcotics. Scorpio is very narcotic. Uh, we're talking about heroin. Uh, all the opiates are very big in the Neptune and Scorpio time. And even when they introduce things like uh, LSD and some of the psychedelics, which become a big part of the summer of love and this whole MK ultra mind control experiment that takes place during this time, opiates never really go away. The Vietnam war was a byproduct of taking over the, uh, the heroin, the opiate and the heroin production and distribution in the golden triangle from the French. The United States basically said, get the fuck out of here. So we're going to take this over now, which is what happened because the French were in Vietnam and they were there for a while and they would take the, you know, the heroin from Vietnam and it would go from Vietnam to Marseille and it'd go from Marseille into Europe and then the rest of the world. Well, at some point, uh, the, uh, the people who profit in illicit drugs, and then I'm not just saying like the CIA or, uh, the United States Army, it's the forces, um, the economic forces and power who employ them, especially the CIA. They were the ones that were interested in it. So we're talking about banking interests, really. The same people that made a shit ton of money off of prohibition. Same group, basically, maybe a few new players. So opiates are always in the background. Either they're being used in Vietnam or when the soldiers come back from Vietnam, they're junkies, um, or they become dealers. The, you know, of course, we know the stories about cadavers being stuffed with uh, heroin, which is true, and flown back to the United States, and the, the heroin would be taken out of them, and then brought into the inner cities, which would destroy the inner cities. So Neptune and Scorpio is savage. It decimates um, it decimates America in a lot of ways. And it's through, it's through opiates and mostly, mostly heroin. You have morphine, of course, is part of the opiate family and you have uh, uh, opium itself. So you have opium, heroin, and morphine. And o opium is, you, you can smoke it of the three. Uh, it's still addictive, but it's not going to be as addictive as say, say morphine. And heroin somewhere in the middle. They're all addictive. So that's how, that's sort of the astrological background of all this. It's Neptune and Scorpio and people dealing with the addiction. And out of the, the hummus of addiction rises synanon. So this attack therapy, which is connected to 
the North Korean style. And again, I don't know. I, I haven't figured out where Dietrich picks this up. But this is the thing that they use in order to get people to go straight. And then they would do things like they would humiliate people. And if you backslid or you fucked up, you did something wrong, they would literally shave your head. They would give you a metaphoric haircut in front of the group. And then you would walk around with a sign and the sign would say, I'm stupid. Please don't give me anything to drink. And they actually portray this in the movie with a guy that's caught drinking uh, cough syrup, which had codeine in it. And of course, codeine is part of the uh, opiate family. So he gets caught. And at the end of the, at the end of the movie, he's got a shaved head and he's wearing his, this is what they did. They would humiliate people. So if you did something that was good and something that was, you know, worthy of praise, they would praise you and they would give you applause. And so therefore they would build you up. It became a very powerful tool. And Dietrich quickly um, rises to power. He fights off, he does about 25 days in jail because of some zoning restrictions. And then he winds up getting incarcerated people sent to Senate on like people that are instead of, instead of like, if they get busted for drugs, instead of going to jail, he gets the judges to send these guys and women to Senate on. So he's getting people into the program and he's actually fairly successful in a lot of ways. And he, he coins the phrase today is the first day of the rest of your life. He's a very interesting polarizing character at Synanon, they smoke like chimneys. They drink tons of coffee, um, but they don't do drugs. That's the, you know, the bottom line. And they have people that show up there during the mid sixties who are uh, psychotherapists. And they write like these glowing praises about Synanon. And in fact, who was it? There was a politician that said there's a miracle happening in California and it's called Synanon. I forget who it was. Might've been Ted Kennedy, but this is how Synanon was looked at because there was nothing like it. There was nothing like, there was no place for somebody who was hooked on junk to get help. And Synanon does that and it has, a fairly, fairly good success rate. Of course, there are backsliders and people that wind up leaving. Once you leave, you can't come back. And it becomes very militant inside of those four walls eventually. But there are these um, two psychotherapists that show up. We're going to have to probably carry this over to tomorrow. But it's a really super interesting story. And I'm going to show you... Um, Right here, we go to the Wikipedia page. I'm going to show you how revolutionary Synanon was. So Synanon's influence in the behavior modification field. Mel Wasserman, influenced by his Synanon experience, founded CEDU, Education CEDU Schools, used the confrontation model of Synanon. The CEDU model was widely influential on the development of parent choice, private pay, residential programs, People originally inspired by their CEDU experience developed or strongly influenced a significant number of schools 
in the therapeutic boarding school industry. So this is the birth of the recovery center. Father William B. O'Brien, the founder of New York's Daytop Village, included Senanon's group encounters in confrontational approach in his research into addiction treatment methods. The author, journalist, and activist uh, Maya uh, Slalovitz claims to claims to chart the influence of Synanon and other programs, including Phoenix House, Straight, Incorporated, and Boot Camps, in addition to those mentioned above. Despite its controversies and its downfall, the Synanon program is credited with helping people with their addictions. For example, Synanon was credited with recovery, uh, with recovery of the heroin addicted jazz musicians, Frank Rehack, Arnold Ross, Joe Pass, and Art Pepper. Pepper discussed Synanon, Synanon experiences at length in his autobiography, Straight Life, and the actor, Matthew Beard. In 1962, Pass formed a band composed of Synanon patients who recorded an album called The Sounds of Synanon. The Synanon organization was praised by motivational speaker, Flory Fisher, in her speeches to high school students, and she cited Synanon with curing her of her heroin addiction. Synanon also inspired the creation of successful programs such as the Delancey Street Foundation, co-founded by John Marr, a former Synanon member, he founds Delancey Street. Mar eventually goes sideways and Mimi Silver picks it up and Delancey Street is still functioning to this day, takes people off the streets and rehabilitates them. Uh, and there's a very interesting connection with Delancey Street, People's Temple and Glide Memorial with George Moscone. So there is another six degrees of separation from Synanon. Many, for, many former board members still value what they see as the positive aspects of Synanon, primarily in the strong sense of community and remain in close direct contact in person or through online chat groups and have gone into business together. A branch of Synanon was founded in Germany in 71 and is still in operation. So Synanon creates essentially the modern version of the recovery center. There are two famous, semi-famous psychotherapists who write books about Synanon and their experience there. And one of them actually spins off and creates his own version of, I think it might be Wasserman, who creates his own version of the experience. So Synanon is very strange in that it, it's very Aquarian because Chuck Dieterich is an Aries. We'll get into some of that tomorrow with his chart. And then he's also an Aquarius rising which means that he's going to be revolutionary and radical. And he kind of saw himself in this figure as a great man. He saw himself as a Martin Luther or Martin Luther King, a social reformer in uh, the grandest sense, somebody who would have an impact on the world. And ironically, he did. Chuck Dieterich does have an impact on the world in that what comes out of Synanon might have wound up saving millions of lives. And of course, it'd be indirectly because there was nothing like this prior to Synanon. Chuck Dieterich is a trailblazer and he also becomes the worst part of all this, the shadow side where his megalomania and his paranoia begin to take over. And that is the dark side of Synanon. And it goes from being this template of how people can kick 
heavy drugs, change their lives, and as a result, ultimately integrate back into society to eventually becoming his own private army. And that transformation is what we'll cover tomorrow in essentially what is part four in this deep dive in California. And it's uh, it's cultic roots and connections with intelligence groups, namely the CIA. You know, maybe this week we'll, re- we'll revisit the Symbionese Liberation Army and Project Phoenix, which comes out of Vietnam and is connected to the SLA. I mean, there, there are tentacles all over this stuff. And in the meantime, I'll, I'll go run down the Paul Morantz uh, video where he talks about sending on employing these North Korean brainwashing techniques. And he mentions one person in particular who is kind of a pivotal figure in bringing those techniques back to the United States. So I'm going to try to look for a link between him him and, and Charles Diedrich and see if I can connect the two. Because then that takes us back to the movie, The Manchurian Candidate with Lawrence Harvey. All right. So thanks for being here. If you're watching uh, the show on, on uh, BoxCast, thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. If you're listening on podcast, check out 15minutesofflame.com, the website, 9, 11 a.m., Monday through Thursday. Use your head in order to discern what's real. Your heart